What's so great about being human? Okay, this is the question that we're asking tonight. And I think right away we need to acknowledge that there are those who will take issue with this very question and with the way that it's phrased. They will say there's nothing great about being human. Uh, There's nothing that makes us special or sets us apart. This is very much an atheistic point of view. The atheist argues since there is no God, there is no creator. And since there is no creator, there is no design. What follows is that the universe and everything in it, including you and me, are cosmic accidents. That we are all flukes of time plus chance and ultimately meaningless. Bertrand Russell, who was a British atheist and philosopher, states this position with tremendous force. He says, and I quote, that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of the human genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe and ruins. All of these things, he says, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. And he concludes this way, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be safely built. (laughs) That's a lot to take in. But to this question, what's so great about being human? Well, to atheists like Bertrand Russell, the answer is obvious. There is nothing that is great about uh, being human. There is nothing that makes us special, nothing that distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. Well, the Bible has a very different answer. But believe it or not, the Bible acknowledges that we human species, that we have a lot in common with the animal kingdom, that we are kin with creation. Kin is a good southern word, uh, meaning family. You use kin in Oklahoma, I bet, right? Yeah, you've got kin, right? The Bible says that we are kin with creation, and it says it in a number of ways. For starters, the Bible says that human beings were born on the same day as other land creatures. You heard it read. We are twinning, right, with cows and koalas and chimpanzees and everything in between, right? Brothers and sisters with them. Our brotherhood and our sisterhood with the animal kingdom goes deeper than that. We eat the same food. We're given the same divine breath of life. And in Genesis chapter 2, we are told that we are made of the same stuff as all other life. And biologists would back that up. Right? We are kin with creation. But that is not all. Right? If we are kin with creation, we are also kings for creation. And you see this in verse 26. You see in this verse that God has set us apart as kings and queens who are to rule over and lovingly steward everything that God has made. 
Now, this is a unique and a high calling. No other creature, right? No other animal on planet Earth is quite like this. No other creature has been given this charge and has been empowered to execute it. I want you to consider this fact from nature. Okay, across the animal kingdom, creatures care for their own. There's nothing unusual about that. Lions care for their cubs. Eagles care for their eaglets. Seals care for their pups. And human moms and dads care for their kiddos. However, human beings do not just care for their own. Right? Human beings care for the radically other too. Right? You will never see a lion care for an eagle or an eagle care for a seal or any other combination thereof. But you will see human beings across time and across space not just caring for their own. They care for the radically other too. They care not just for their own but for other species too. No other creature on planet Earth does this and to this degree. This is special. There is something special about us, but what is it exactly? Let's drill into that just a little bit more. The answer that the Bible gives and the answer that God gives is that what makes human beings so great is that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God. That's what makes us great. That that is what makes you special. And you find this very important doctrine on page one of the Bible and in verses 26 and 27. And I want to spell out three points from these, uh, these two verses in particular. First of all, the first thing that I want you to see from this passage is that being made in the image of God means that your life has meaning and purpose. Right? Contra Bertrand Russell, your life does have meaning and your life does have purpose. In verse 26, God says, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. God made you in his image because he wants you to be like him. He wants you to image him. To show and tell who he is and what he is like. Loving and merciful just and kind. You see, of all the creatures on planet Earth, God entered into a personal face-to-face relationship with us so that we would be able to reflect his heart and his character to the world around us. We were made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God, you could say. I want you all to think about a mirror, like a handheld mirror. When you hold out a mirror like this, it reflects you, right? But for you, sitting over there, if you were to look into this mirror, you would see my face too, right? That's what's cool about mirrors. Like when they're in a face-to-face relationship with it, if you look into the mirror, you can see the one that it's reflecting. And that's kind of what God wants us to be like, right? In this face-to-face relationship with him. The mirror is not God, but it holds or it contains his image. So much so that if you were to look at it, you would be like, I see God in you. That's what we were made to be like. Uh, Images, right, of God. People in a face-to-face relationship with him, reflecting to everyone who would look what God is like. 
I see God in you. The Bible says that we've all been created this way and given this calling, but we've all left our post. We have turned our backs on God. We're still mirrors, but we're turning this way. We're still reflecting something. We're still reflecting someone, but it's not God so much as it is the world around us with all of its trappings and its values, right? Greed and narcissism and um, violence, um, anxiety, hypersexuality, depression, and more. In this position, with our backs turned towards God or turned on God, we don't cease to be image bearers, but something is amiss. We're not working quite right. And in enters Jesus, coming to people who have their backs turned on God, uh, coming to people who have rejected him. And you know what the first words out of his mouth are in the Gospel of Mark? He says, listen, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. This word repent is actually a really beautiful word that simply means turn around, right? Change course. To someone who's, who's, who's created to be in a face-to-face relationship with God, but who's turned their backs on him, repent sounds like, turn around, enter into a face-to-face relationship with me again. To those who have turned their backs on God and are going off on uh, some awful direction, turn around means, come home. Come home. To someone who is in this position with their backs on God, turn around means, be and do what you are always meant to be and do, right? Image me again. When we turn around and we enter into a relationship with God again, we are able to be and to do what God has always intended us to be and do. We're able to take in God's goodness and grace to experience it ourselves and then to channel it out to others. Again, I see God in you. You make the invisible God more visible to me. You make the invisible God more tangible, more real to me. You're not him, but I get a sense of him when I'm with you. That kind of thing, you know? Hans Ruckmacher, he's a Dutch theologian. He said, Christ didn't come simply to make us Christians, you know, but to make us human beings again. Right? To restore our human dignity. To make us image bearers once more. Right? to bring us back into that face-to-face relationship with God again. And in so doing, he gives our lives meaning and purpose once more. It's not a new meaning, but an old one. It's the one that we had in the beginning. Image God. This is what it means to be human. This is what makes you so great. You give a watching world, right? You are made, you are called to give the watching world a glimpse, a little taste of who the maker is. It's awesome. The second thing that I want you to see from this text is that everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone. Which means that everyone, you included, right, have intrinsic dignity and worth. In the movie uh, Toy Story, uh, Andy has written his name on the sole of every toy's shoe. And when Woody and Buzz are prone to despair, it is the discovery and the rediscovery of that name written on the soles of their shoes that brings them back to life. And the same is true of you. 
Because what this text is saying is that God has written his name on you, not on the soles of your shoes, but on your very soul, S-O-U-L, right? He has put his name on you. And this gets to the very heart of your identity and mine. You see, your dignity and your worth does not come from your performance. It doesn't come from your grades. It doesn't come from your looks or how many followers you've got on Instagrams or how many likes your last social media posts got. Your your identity, your dignity and worth is not based on what your peers think of you. It's not based on what your parents think of you. It's not even based on what you think of you. It's based on what God thinks of you. And what he thinks, what he says is, you are beautiful because you bear my image. You are my beloved because you bear my image, right? You are mine because my name is on you. Beautiful, beloved, and mine. This makes you great. I want you to look at verse 27. A little Bible trivia for you. This is the first poem in the Bible. And you know what? It is a love poem from God about you. On page one, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, God makes mankind in his image. Not just men, but women too. Not just white people, but black people and brown people. People from every race, every ethnicity, every gender. It doesn't matter their age. It doesn't matter their sexuality. It doesn't matter their relationship status, their political persuasion, their spiritual background, or their religious beliefs. Every person on the planet is made in the image of God, and therefore every person you will ever encounter has intrinsic dignity and worth. Even though the United States has never lived up to this ideal, it is true nonetheless that all men and women are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. We haven't lived up to that ideal, but that doesn't make that statement untrue. It's still true. And it comes straight from page one of the Bible. In his famous sermon, The American Dream, uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. makes this very point. He says, we are all equal. Not some of us, all of us. He says, and I quote, the whole concept of the Imago Dei as it is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard, precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. Everybody's saying, yes. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. Every human person is made in the image of God, and therefore every human person has intrinsic 
dignity, and worth. And this brings me to our third and final point. The image of God is most fully expressed in diverse community. The image of God is most fully expressed in diverse community. In verse 26, the one and only God says, let us make mankind in our image, after our likeness. Now, if you're paying close attention, that should strike you as a little strange. Why is the one God referring to himself in the plural? And the secret that we sort of un- that unfolds as we work our way through the scriptures is that the one and only God has forever and ever existed as a community with three divine persons in it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One community called God with three persons in it. When God says, let us make mankind in our image after our likeness, it's like we're listening in on an in-house conversation, eavesdropping on this family chat. In this family community called God, there are three persons who are equals, but who are not the same. They're equals, but they're not the same. The father is not the son, and the son is not the father. And the Father and Son are not the Spirit. Right? Within God, there's equality, but there is diversity at the same time. There's unity and diversity within God. And here's why this matters. We are made in the image of a God like this. Unified and diverse. God does not make three humanities. He makes one humanity. In the image of God, he created him. But within this one humanity, you will find dazzling diversity. People who are equals but who are not the same. Male and female, he created them. See, God has made us equals, and he has made us diverse. And we need to recognize both of these truths. Honoring each other's equality, right? The equality that men and women share. The equality that we, uh, of, of every tribe and tongue and nation, share, even as we celebrate the richness of the diversity that is to God's glory. God is more glorified by our diversity and by our unity, right? What is so great about being human is that we're made in the image of a God like this, a God who is both personal and communal, a God who is one and diverse, a God who is love and who made us not only to know this love, but to show it, to experience it ourselves, but also to channel it to the world around us. C.S. Lewis says it well, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. We are all stamped with this royal dignity. But this image of God is far too rich for it to be fully realized in a single human being, however gifted that person may be. In his book, The Beautiful Community, Pastor Erwin Entz writes, when I look at another human being, I'm looking at royalty, but I'm not looking at the full measure of what it means for humanity to be God's image. If you want to picture a fully finished image of God, you have to picture all of humanity unified in diversity under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You need to go to church, right? You need to be in a community with people who do not look like you 
and do not think like you and do not talk like you. But when we come together as one, right, regardless of age, gender, sex, right, when we come together as one in the love of Jesus, that gives the world a truer, more fuller picture of who God is and what he is like. Tonight we turn to God's word uh, looking for an answer to our question, what's so great about being human? We saw that we are kin with creation, but more than that, we're kings for creation. We see that we're made in the image of God for the sake of imaging God. We see that we are stamped with God's royal dignity at the moment of our inception, that he has put his name on our hearts and on our souls. We belong to him. We are his and he is ours. Finally, God has created us to live in community, not just with those who look like us or who talk like this, but with those who are different from us. And when we do that, when we love those who are different from us, the image of God is most clearly seen. We started tonight with this question, but I want to leave you with two, even three others. I've put two of them at the bottom of your page. See, God doesn't just answer this question to fill our head with facts. He tells us these answers in order to change us, in order to renew us in his image, in order to help us to become more and more fully human, right? So here's my question for you. First of all, how does this text change the way that you see or treat yourself? Because it ought to. And secondly, how does this text change the way you see and treat other people? Because it ought to have that effect too. Finally, think back to that mirror illustration. See, we've all sort of turned our backs on God. It's, it's not just uh, non-Christians. Christians still have parts of their lives that are in maybe aversion to him. But what would it look like for you to turn around? What would it mean? What are those parts of your life where you're like, yeah, I've got my back turned on him. What would it look like to repent? What would it look like to bring that part of your life into a face-to-face relationship with God so that you can more fully image the heart and character of God? Jesus is inviting you to do that. He's always inviting you to do that. Uh, The same invitation is extended to me. So as a campus pastor and as a fellow sojourner, right? Let's consider these things. Let's, let's think on them and also encourage each other as we think through it together. Does that sound good? Cool. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing one more song.